is like he lives in like this old shitty RV and he was like a can bum. <laughs> I guess long enough to be able to buy this RV. Like no one knows where how he got this RV. But you know, and then like when we find out he's a can bum, we're like, oh, that was weird. And like another woman's like, I bet I knew you when you were a can bum. Like we used to live in a tent over there. And I was like, yeah, he's had like throat cancer and lung cancer, and I think like still currently has that. But like he just like smokes and goes and gets drunk every single day. And he has one of those like push walkers that you can sit on, and they have the brakes. <laughs> But walks over to the store and buys all these beers, which he's not allowed to do anymore because he was like navigating his walker and like knocked a row of something out. And like the Asian lady who owns it was like, Get out of here, you're drunk. It doesn't let him come back anymore. So yeah, he has to like send people on it. But when he was still allowed oh, to go. Oh, it's a bummer when you live so close yeah. to a place. <laughs> right? So he'd like go over and then he'd get tired and have to like sit on it and just like scoot himself backwards home and like be drinking his beers. But anyway, oh, James, that's his name. His name is James. So I was expecting before I knew that James had been a can bum that he was like 75 and just like came across this misfortune of having like lung cancer and then one day someone out of it was like how old are you how old are you James he's like I'm 56 <laughs> he looks like he's almost 80 <laughs> Brian, my boyfriend, was talking to him once, and he's like, oh, yeah, that, that must have hurt, or like this or that, and he, James was complaining about how he, he can't get some kind of painkiller anymore, and we're like, oh, why not, and he's like, I used to be a heroin addict, and we're like, oh, we were expecting you to, like, be allergic to penicillin or something. Or something. Penicillin or something. I used to be a heroin addict. He wears pants though, generally. So that's good. I'm 56. <laughs> I used to be a heroin addict. I'm 56. <laughs> But at least in pants. In pants. Yeah. Sweatpants. Yell van. That's the best is going on gallery. One. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
else wants to enjoy the peace and quiet. Who are you? You miserable, presumptuous, no talent. You're no artist. An artist respects the silence. It serves as the foundation of creativity. to hit me. I'm an NYU film school graduate, sucker. Okay, that's fine, but please don't hit me. I'm just trying out a new piece. You suck! No, uh, I'm actually pretty decent. You obviously don't have the talent. You are no talent. You really had talent go practice. That's what I'm doing here. I'm practicing. My name is Helms, and I just started playing guitar last year, and... You don't have enough respect for yourself or other people, or what it is to express yourself. Who the fuck are you? You nothing. You nothing. You are nothing, and you will never be anything. I knew the Grateful Dead from 1966. Who the fuck are you? You nothing! Well, I, I wasn't even born then. I was born in 1980. How dare you? How dare you? You miserable, mediocre nothing! You can't even carry a fucking note. I don't care about your little, like, horn lip. It doesn't mean that you know how to play. You're flat! I'm trained classically! I'm trained contemporaneous. Hmm. Okay. You suck. You are no talent. You suck. Disgrace. You suck. You are everything that's gone wrong in this world. You suck. Disgrace. You are self-consumed. Disgrace. No talent. Mediocre piece of shit. Disgrace. You suck. You suck. I've earned my right to say it. Disgrace! Okay? Disgrace! Please don't hit me. In 1975, I knew the Grateful Dead from 1966. Whatever. I Bob Dylan up on stage. You, you win. Who the fuck are you? I knew the Grateful Dead from 1966. Who the fuck are you? You nothing. You nothing. You are nothing, and you will never be anything. Never. Sucker.
know for myself that my reality has changed over time. My definition of reality and what is my reality. Yeah, everything's so subjective. It's surprising that anyone can agree on anything at any time. Right. There seems to be like a degree of compromise all the time at play, huh? Well, collaboration, I feel like, is is very much improvisation, and you just ha- kind of have to embrace mistakes as they happen and incorporate it and make it a part of it. Yeah. I feel like the more you try to hide mistakes, the more they'll stick out. But if you embrace it, it enhances it and becomes part of it. Definitely like the feel of a distant sun. As I get older, I want to be colder. Really? Like the temperature can't, colder? Yeah, I can't take the hot weather anymore, man. It, uh, what, what can't you take about it? I just feel uncomfortable in the heat. Like I would rather live somewhere where it's cold year round. Like, I've honestly never been to the far north, but I'd like to go. I'd like to go to Yellowknife Northwest Territories and spend a little time and just see if that would be the place for me. Just because the weather? Because of the location, um, but I'll bet. I'll bet culturally, I would not fit in. Just a hunch. Because you're, you're not from around those parts, or That's right. And I don't know what the culture is up there. I mean, what do people really do for fun? And just with the nature of the kind of work I do, I don't I don't think... I would have to go up there and have a job. Some kind of defined paycheck. Something I've not known for six years of being self-employed. Almost seven. Yeah, and to be self-employed, at least in the way that you are, really, you have to be a member of a community, so you can't just jump right into that somewhere else. It would be fun to go up there and visit, though, and just see what it's like. I mean, I feel like geographically, I could stand to be another 500 or 1,000 miles farther north. Wow. Definitely don't want to go south. These leaves are sure loud to walk over. Why don't we make our way to the road? I found by being... By living in a city, that at first I really didn't like the energy of being around lots of people. What city do you live in, by the way? San Francisco. And just the density of people there, you know, you, you, it's impossible to get anywhere without running into sometimes literally millions of other people. So at first that, that's overwhelming, just the eyes and the, the sights and, you know, what, you know that people are looking at you. And, you know, you have to adjust your behavior for others constantly and and vice versa. And it's just, it's a lot of additional mental work that you have to do, even if it's subconscious. And over time, I've learned to, you know, dislike that less and kind of embrace it. I still like it in small doses, 
but it used to be something that was really was very off-putting but now is much less so how long have you lived there again uh i guess about six months but i would live there for a summer two years ago so i really didn't like it when i lived there for the summer because i was in the middle of the city the whole time it was difficult to get out do you miss living in oregon I do. There's it's it, there's a it's a drought down there, so there's brown grass everywhere, and just the density of people. Just it takes forever to it takes like an hour to go ten miles during rush hour. So it, you know it, it has the same number of out, type of outdoor activities like hiking and biking and that kind of stuff. But the difference is you've got millions of people more in California. I've often wondered what kind of bird this is in this tree here, hanging out in this holly. Yeah, I've noticed every time I walk past this tree, it's very alive with birds this time of year? Uh, just in the last few weeks, I've noticed that. There's one thing birds like, it's trees. Galaxy. Most people know me. Uh, I have multiple different projects. This one right now, Project Isle, is really, uh, it's really in the moment music. I can tell you like what kind of music it is because I'm not really paying attention to trying to make any kind of genre or anything. I'm really just like getting the woogies out, you know? It's like, uh, Kind of if you make a painting, like, but with sound, but also, you know, like remediation, like an invisible remediation for your mind. When, when you paint these stories in these pictures, it's like you're getting that stuff out and you put it, but you're putting it in the world in a healthy, creative way. Definitely like some earth elementals, like uh, having a dance party with some uh, like intergalactic quantum light beings.
performed live at Cotton Dog Farms in Corvallis, Oregon. Early winter of 2016. This piece was recorded by Matt Kellum for the Corvallis Metropolitan Opera. chance to speak with the man behind Project Isle after the evening's performance. You know, it, it, could, it, it could seem a little violent to people who didn't understand that it was all consensual and very fun uh, for all, all of the elementals and ethereal light beings that were involved. Please tell us the pieces we heard in tonight's lineup. Uh, there were several different pieces. Uh, I did a remix version of Breathe, 
You know, yeah, it's definitely not prodigy. When I'm in the moment, I'm not really, a lot of the time, I'm not really feeling very cohesive. I'm really not giving a fuck, like, what people, oh, can I say fuck? This is a live broadcast of the Corvallis Metropolitan Opera, and we cannot have swear words. Let's discuss what kind of instrumentation you had in your performance tonight before our record auditorium audience of over 7,000 viewers. You know, I have uh, effects, but I, I also like to limit myself to only a couple of digital things. Like one microphone is what I used tonight with uh, an array of percussion. I brought a floor tom and I have like a 39-inch saw blade that I welded uh, to a bracket to make so it stands up. And uh, I have no aversion to dragging the microphone on things. Sometimes uh, you turn the signal path up and then the on and off button on your microphone is really nice. So you can make a nice horrible noise and then you turn it off and it goes away and turn it back on. And I was doing that. I have an RC50 loop station, which I had made some pre-recorded tracks using my voice and uh, samples that I'd made on an SBDS and then I play them all live and put them into the loop station. Mm -hmm. And then I played those while I was doing other fun, horrible things. Okay, we're going to move along now. It appears the Russian black metal project Death Vogue is taking the stage here at the Corvallis Metropolitan Opera. Thank you, Galaxy of Project Isle. We now go to stage number eight. I also, uh, uh, one part in that track has a bell kit. It's like a smaller, like, uh, classical percussion instrument. And that is in the key of fuck sharp major. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. We now go to stage number eight. Death Vog. We come from Russia. We are here to fuck you, to make sex with you, and to stifle it bidding star. <laughs> for the continued profanity here on this live radio broadcast we'll just cut to a preview of next week's featured artist here at the Corvallis Metropolitan Opera we're going to hear a black metal band from Vardo, Norway known as Blackened F recording the sound of the fire you could record the sound of us reacting to the fire because you can't hear it anyway or you can make your own fire at home while you're listening to this and have the ambiance of the smells recommendation the of the day make your own fire 
Be safe, kids. Don't do drugs. Actually, do 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 drugs. If you want, make sure it's your own decision. You can, as long as it's legal, you can hurt yourself, Actually, but don't hurt anyone else, okay? Unless they want to be hurted too. Well, I mean, legally they're legally they're, okay. they're fine. Marcus yeah. prescription. Yeah, but doctors don't know the best, quote unquote, legal. Hey. I don't know. Hey. I don't know. I'm not I'm not Hey. I don't know. I'm not I'm not a scientist, so don't don't trust I'm not I'm I don't know. Tell your doctor they're giving you whatever. Does Google know more than your doctor? Probably. In some cases. We're walking north toward Willamette Park here in Corvallis, Oregon. Looks as though we're heading into a floodplain. And we have got with us today someone you may know. Her name is Jill Stein. Welcome to Oregon, Jill. It's great to be here. It's beautiful. It's open. The air is clean. I'm looking at water and vegetation, which I haven't seen in weeks, it feels like. And this is the world that um, we have to protect. And dang it, it looks like the path is flooded from here. <laughs> okay. That's okay, we have other ways of, of reaching Willamette Park. Unfortunately, I didn't bring my canoe. And this area is usually completely open, but it floods some, some winters. And this is, like, finally, it feels like we've gotten back to a regular winter here. Is that so? Last winter well, felt like spring the whole time. It was. You may be the only region in the world that has gotten back to your regular winter. We just heard the news yesterday. Where know? are you from? I'm from uh, outside of Boston. And we are definitely not having regular winter. And just yesterday, you know, we got the news that officially 2015 is the warmest year ever on record. Seems we, we hear that every year. Yes, and the last two we've been setting new all-time records. And we're seeing it and we're feeling it. And this is not normal. This is not natural. And we let this continue at our peril. And let me correct myself because... It's not we who are charting this course. You know, this is fossil fuel predators and their political bedfellows who have charted this course and who have really locked us on it at our peril. And it's wonderful to see what the Portland area is doing about that. It was really exciting to be there over the last two days and get a glimpse of what everyday people are doing to stop the coal trains and the pipelines and the propane refineries and the oil refineries and the 
shell oil rigs that are heading to Alaska. I mean, it's very exciting to see how people can stand up and stop this from happening. And of course, farther north up in British Columbia, I'll, I'll probably mispronounce the tribe's name, but I believe it's it's close to the Unistoten tribe stopping um, a, a pipeline from invading their land, and they've been documenting it pretty well. It seems these fights are going on all over, and, and it's like we make progress in some ways, but then in other ways, yeah, the corporatocracy is running amok. Absolutely, and, and I do want to underscore what you just said, that Native Americans and and uh, Canadians as well, you know, that it's the indigenous peoples really who are the caretakers of the land and who have been safeguarding it for millennia, you know, and they're not going to allow it to be destroyed right now. And their courage is absolutely, um, you know, inspiring, transformational. They are leading the charge and we need to do all that we can to support their fight. Their fight is our fight. Uh, And we're all in this together. I certainly feel like personally I've been awake to a lot of what's going on for for quite some time with climate change and with oil companies and lobbyists having and all kinds of big industries having far too much influence in our political process. I will say I'm very thankful for Occupy Wall Street and um, the internet. I feel like especially this election we might see the last election where the mainstream media really even counts. I mean, I think their, their <laughs> pants are down at this point. I, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's really true. Things are different. And, and I also want to agree with you that things are not going well. It's hard to even see the one step forward. You know, mostly we are taking giant leaps backward, you know, under the watch of a political system which has been hijacked. So it's not just this issue. It's health care. It's jobs. It's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will be devastating to the environment, to public health, to workers. And, you know, it's Democrats and Republicans. I hate to be partisan on a kind of nonpartisan show, but I think... Uh, As Frederick Douglass says, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. It's very important for us to uh, speak truth about what is happening here and who's responsible for it and whose stranglehold needs to be broken. Um, And I feel like time is short. Uh, You know, looking at this landscape, this is one of the few preserved landscapes listening to the birds you know, thank God they're still here. You know, they haven't heard about the sixth great extinction. And, and I hope we manage to turn the tide. But if we don't start moving on that, on not only the preservation of the few lands that are still undisturbed, but we have to start restoring them big time and restoring ecosystems that have been devastated, including open space and, and rivers and, and watersheds and Uh, you know, and coastlines. We've got to not only protect what we have, we've got to start reversing the degradation, and we've got to do that quickly. We're in a state of emergency, and, you know, that's very much why I'm here doing what I'm doing as a mother and a medical doctor, because we cannot afford for anyone to sit on the sidelines here. This is an all-hands-on-deck emergency. The ship is going down. We all need to uh, do our part, whatever that is, you know, and wherever you are. There is something that everybody can do, and by all of us mobilizing and refusing to be 
brainwashed and bamboozled into the sense of powerlessness that the political establishment would like us to have. They want us to feel like we got to make choices here between two corporate, degraded, corrupt political parties that have made very clear what their agenda is over the past many decades that they've been in charge. And they tell us that we're powerless and we should be hopeless. So just uh, go take a hike, you know. And on that note, and just to clarify, you are running for president under the Green Party ticket. That's right. This is your second time running for president. I know that because I supported you in 2012, which this is something that blows my mind. It seems everyone I knew voted for you in 2012, yet the percentage point from Oregon was was so minute. In fact, I wrote it down. Um, uh, 1.09% of the vote in Oregon, which was 19,427 votes, which most, if not all of my friends said, yeah, I voted for Jill Stein. We weren't happy with Obama at that point. And what I think is the worst thing about Obama's presidency is he's the he is the top fictitious president. Everybody's got their own narrative, and their own idea about Obama, and very little fact-based, it seems. And a lot of people hate him so much, but for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, secret Muslim, etc. Yes. <laughs> um, this election, I feel like, with the frontrunners, Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side, despite what the corporate media says, and Donald Trump on the Republican side, both are shaking up their lame parties and... I feel especially Donald Trump with the Republicans. I mean, they've been killing themselves for so long with just how ridiculous they are to where it seems the only people that relate to the Republican Party are, are the mentally ill. I uh, think in your case and in the case of Bernie Sanders, finally, sane ideas are making their way. And even if, um, you know, just kind of like with Dennis Kucinich, even if you're considered not viable, the ideas that are being put into the discourse need to be there. Um, it's a shame that in this country people are so married to the two-party system, which is just a one-party system, as we know. And I think, you know, uh, this is going to play out. And there have been very strong uh, campaigns of integrity and reform within the Democratic Party before. Sure. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party has a kill switch, and it's called... Uh, Super Tuesdays and Super Delegates. So while Bernie may be running very strong in Iowa and in New Hampshire, across the country he's not. He's done better, but Hillary's still ahead. They can go into the convention with uh, Bernie in the lead based on primary results, and Hillary can still walk away with it. Which is what I think a lot of people expect. And they have not yet you know, gone into the Super Tuesdays, which is where you need your super PACs and your big corporate money to get you through that. So this didn't happen by accident. You know, Mm -hmm. this was by design in the Democratic Party after George McGovern, a peace candidate, won the nomination in 1972. The Democratic Party went back to the drawing boards and rearranged the structure so that that would never, ever, ever, ever happen again. So whenever a progressive candidate has really acquired real momentum, like Jesse Jackson, what did they do to him? Well, for him, you know, and he was running big primaries, too, in Midwestern states, what they did was take out, you know, their smear campaign, and they targeted him as being uh, an enemy of Israel and an anti-Semite and dragged him down, you know, in the polls. For uh, Dennis Kucinich, you know, they wouldn't allow him on the stage to start with, and then they redistricted him so he wouldn't be a threat. 
And he was um, always painted as weak and weird and yes, exactly. And then there's Howard Dean, who was running a very strong anti-war campaign. And what happened to Howard Dean? It was the Dean scream that got going. Isn't that crazy? That a, a, a goofy uh, scream. An engineered smear campaign because everybody right. screams. You know, they just took a scream, and you know, everybody looks bad sometimes, and they just really blew it up and uh, you know made it into an attack ad. So that's what we should expect. And if anybody's thinking otherwise, you need to think again. Uh, it's not likely that a party that has managed to do this for 40, 50 years uh, is going to change course right now. So whether you consider our campaign a plan B for when Bernie gets sidelined or whether you consider our campaign a plan A, because in order to fight this, it's not one person. You really need a political party that is an enduring coalition and a game plan and a strategy that has more than a one-year time frame to it. Because in one year, especially when Bernie's already said he's going to support Hillary you know, or whatever corporate candidate wins this. That means that all the building, all the organizing, all the fundraising, all the volunteer base, it feeds back into Hillary's campaign. So that's just, you know, it doesn't do justice to the movement. The movement needs a political movement which is independent and not, at the end of the day, subject to destruction by a party that is fundamentally opposed to everything that this movement stands for. I don't know many people at all, especially friends of mine who are into Bernie Sanders, that would support Hillary. Um, she's seen very negatively, I feel, among true progressives. Do you expect, if Bernie does get sidelined, that an outpouring of support for your campaign might start to pick up steam, considering the role of social media and the Internet in this campaign? We are already hearing that. You know, and in fact, our Facebook page is just full of Bernie supporters who are hedging their bets and who are saying, you know, there's no downside here to making sure that our campaign gets on the ballot so that voters across the country have a choice with the understanding that um, history is very likely to repeat itself here in terms of the Democratic Party, um, you know, really sidelining Bernie, and that they're going to very much need a, uh, a plan B, a place to go to build for the long haul. If that were to happen, if Bernie doesn't get the Democratic nomination and he asked you that he was going to run as an independent and he wanted you to be his running mate, what would you say? I would say, let's talk about that. You know, and actually, we've been trying to have a conversation with Bernie for a long course, time. Elizabeth Warren seems to be the hopeful for, you know, because oh, he had, he had hinted sure. towards that. Oh, yes, definitely. That's Have you ever sure. spoken with Bernie about this? Well, as I say, I've tried often to speak with Bernie, uh, and the party has tried to speak. Does he snub you? Bernie does not talk to people who are not Democrats. Even though he says he's an independent, he doesn't talk to independents. He says he's a socialist, but he doesn't talk to socialists either. So, you know, he is... Um, you know, he may be ideologically have those leanings, but in terms of as a political strategy, as far as I can tell, um, he's he's a Democrat, you know, through and through, tried and true, uh, cradle to grave. And, you know, his uh, view is that whatever happens, it has to happen in the Democratic Party. He very much supports this idea of, uh, you know, the lesser evil, that that democracy is sort of a threat, you know, that that independent politics is a threat to 
the lesser evil. But in my experience politically, the lesser evil invariably paves the way to the greater evil. You know, how is it that Congress flipped from being two houses that were Democrat to being two houses that are Republican? That happened after Obama basically revealed his true colors and failed to fight against Wall Street. You know, when push came to shove after he was elected, that's who he delivered for. It was for Wall Street. It was the incredible bailouts. You know, it was uh, the continued push for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was $5 trillion in um, tax breaks for the wealthy, including making the Bush tax cuts permanent. It was trillions of dollars in uh, Wall Street bailouts after Bush did $700 billion. I mean, he made Bush look like a wimp. He expanded the wars. He did the surge into Afghanistan. The only reason he pulled out from, from Iraq was because George Bush's commitment to the government of Iraq that ended the immunity of U.S. soldiers, that forced Obama to remove the troops, you know, so he tried to make a big thing that, you know, he was a peace candidate, hardly. You know, so people were very uh, thrown under the bus by the Obama administration that went to the mat for Wall Street and didn't help students, didn't help young people in debt, didn't help um, the millions of people who were being thrown out of their homes in mortgage foreclosures. People were really pissed off about that, and that's why you saw this flip from... Democrat to Republican, first in the House, you know, and then in the Senate, because people were really pissed. And to my mind, that is one of the really compelling reasons why you don't want to do the lesser evil thing, because it invariably paves the way to the greater evil. Sure. Such a serene ringtone. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. If you have to have a ringtone, this is the place for right. it. Right. <laughs> One thing I've always said about Republicans is if they would actually pay attention to Obama, they'd probably really like him. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they um, should. <clears throat> exactly. I, I have a theory, though, as to why from the beginning, I mean, the, the noise machine was turned up loudly from the beginning, wanting him to fail, saying he was a secret Muslim, he was oh, born yeah. in Kenya, oh, yeah. and all just, you know, that, that just, it's red meat for morons, really. And... That's one thing I find very troubling. I think there's a lot of great things happening in our country, a lot of great grassroots movements. However, there just are a lot of dumb people. And I think, you know, I feel like I'm getting dumber just sitting in front of the computer. Facebook has eaten up my brain. I used to write at length. Now I just want to squeeze it all into a, a couple sentences and yeah. dumb it down. And, yeah. you know, don't, don't you feel like Facebook is kind of like eating your brain up to a degree? Or? I think there are a lot of things eating our brains off, actually. You know? Yes. And, and From I the think, GMOs to the... Exactly. And not only GMOs, but the whole you know, industrialization of the food supply has been very devastating to the cause of nutrition. So we've taken good things out by refining foods and, and processing and packaging them. Subsidizing and making them horrible corn-based foods. The and, bad stuff, yeah. exactly. We've taken the good stuff out and we've thrown lots of refined... Uh, extremely unhealthy, inflammatory, to use a term uh, somewhat loosely, but it's it's a diet that uh, there is no question, you know, in the medical literature and epidemiology and all the science you want, we are eating a really poisonous diet. And not to mention, you know, that we're breathing really toxic air. We right. know that air pollution also contributes to learning disabilities and uh, ADHD and uh, Alzheimer's disease and all sorts and of stuff. And you are a doctor, too. You I, have credibility to speak on Well, I, I have actually contributed to a, um, a book uh, written by Physicians for Social Responsibility on this subject called Toxic Threat. 
uh, to child development, and then another one called environmental threats to healthy aging. So yes, there are a whole lot of things out there that are not helping us be a healthy uh, society and community. And the first thing that goes when you start poisoning people, either with lead, like what's happening in Flint, mm-hmm. um, or with pesticides, which are all over the place, and especially you know in GMO foods, the residues are much higher. Um, you know, and the the um, the exposure to farm workers and to communities where this stuff is being. Um, you know, grown, and then it contaminates our water supply and our groundwater and all that, you know, and then there's the heavy metals and the mercury and stuff coming out, spewing out of incinerators and and um, coal plants and all that. So we've made quite a mess of this, yeah. which is what actually mobilized me to start with. You know, that's why I moved from being a doctor practicing clinical medicine that is taking care of the health of everyday people to a doctor practicing political medicine because politics is the mother of all illnesses. And if we actually want to fix what's literally killing us, we've got to fix our very sick uh, political system. And so, yes, I just want to agree with you. There is a lot of toxicity and pathology out there, but it's fixable. It's totally fixable and in a rather rapid time frame. And the other thing I want to stress is that the solutions converge and they compound each other. You know, it's like a, um, a cycle of beneficence. You know, if you start doing the right thing, wherever your starting point is, you know, whether it's food system or protecting open space and, and land, uh, reducing our carbon footprint, uh, ensuring that workers are protected and, you know, and that we stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, there's just so many ways to intervene in this cycle of darkness um, in a way that improves our ability to then make further uh, improvements going forward. So I think it's really important that we fight this sense of powerlessness and hopelessness, and especially the idea that you don't dare stand up for what we really need. And to me, that's what lesser evilism is about. It's about silencing yourself and kind of uh, going along to get along with the least worst of the corporate players who's basically working for Wall Street or for the, the predatory banks or for the fossil fuel giants or for the war profiteers. You know, they are not, at the end of the day, going to do what we need to do. We need an independent form of politics. And remember this. According to the latest Wall Street Journal poll, 50% of Americans, this is the major block of Americans, have rejected the Democratic and Republican parties. So we're not like some puny little, you know, um, protest group. This is the majority of the American public that's been thrown under the bus on jobs, on wages, which are declining, you know, on our jobs, which are being offshored again the privatization of our schools, the debt that's been imposed on um, an entire generation of young people. We're being thrown under the bus, so people are saying, enough of that. And to my mind, we've gone down this road of a politics of fear that says it's more important to vote against your greatest fear than it is to vote what you're for. People don't come out because of what they're against. People come out because of what they're for. And the 2014 election is a really good example of that, where the Democrats keep retrenching to just make themselves one shade less horrible than the Republicans. So 
who came out? About one-third of voters came out to vote. Most people stayed home. 80% of young people stayed home. So we're putting forward, you know, the idea that we can cancel student debt with the stroke of a pen, like we did for Wall Street. We can do that uh, on practically day one of a green administration. If we turn the White House into a greenhouse, there's a whole lot of things we can do, including that we can cancel debt. The president has almost discretionary power through uh, control over the Federal Reserve and its appointments to basically undertake the same thing. It's got a fancy name, but let's just say the same thing that was done for the bankers. We can do that for a generation of young people. And here's the rub. 43 million young people and not-so-very-young people are trapped in this cycle of student debt that can't be repaid because we've got this lousy corporate economy. 43 million people, if they get word through Facebook, through the self-organizing ways that this generation has, nobody's better positioned to self-organize and get the word out. So if the word gets out that young people can come out and effectively cancel debt by their debt uh, right now by voting green in 2016 in November, they actually have the numbers to make that happen. Now, the, the political establishment and the banks are terrified that this word should get out because the minute it does, it's over. Student debt is over and it can be canceled because 43 million young people is a plurality. That is enough to win the election, not only for ending debt, but for ensuring that we have a Green New Deal, which means that we have the jobs, that young people can be guaranteed that they are going to have good living wage jobs, creating a healthy and sustainable, just community and world, um, that we are going to have health care as a human right, which also pays for itself under a Medicare for all system. We need to use the bully pulpit of American leadership, whether it is the president or other offices, to really stand up and go to bat for everyday people and the solutions that are available to us right now to fix, you know, what ails us, both the specifics as well as the deep nature of the system. This can be fixed, but we don't have forever to do it. This could be the Hail Mary election. So, you know, this could be our last opportunity to actually push back against climate change, against the next economic meltdown, against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, and the offshoring of our jobs, against this expanding war and the disaster of terror terrorism that's blowing back at us and the uh, incredible refugee migrations that are also blowing back from these outrageous wars for oil. This could be, you know, the last opportunity to really turn this around in the time that we need to do it. We're calling for 100% clean renewable energy by 2030. We can do that. We did that after Pearl Harbor was bombed. We declared a national emergency. Everybody mobilized, and within six months, we had converted 25% of our entire economy. 25% of GDP was mobilized for the war effort. If we could do that in six months, in 15 years, we can create a 100% uh, clean, renewable energy economy, 100% employed at living wages. Uh, and that just so happens to make wars for oil obsolete. And it pays for itself not only in that sense, but also in the incredible health benefits that are downstream of ending pollution. We get so much better so quickly that we save 
enough money to basically pay the costs of the energy transition. So this is a win-win-win, and the political establishment is quaking in their boots that word gets out, because when we do get to the microphone, this vision, this narrative of a world that works for all of us, it wins the day. It always does. I, I definitely would agree, and it seems that the right-wing noise machine has been, like I said, turned up super loud in the last few years. It's heavily funded, yes. and it, well, let's just think about Ted Cruz for a moment. The, the thought that any human being could come to like him, you know there's some big money going on. He's just the most yeah. icky, uncomfortable guy, and um, it, it seems that he's the Koch brothers' favorites. Yeah, so he has his sugar daddy, you know, he has one or two, which is true for a lot of these really weirdo Republican candidates. They have not won in any court of public opinion. They've just gotten themselves a weirdo sugar daddy, which is interesting. I just want to mention that's what Netanyahu has. You know, that's how Netanyahu keeps returning to power because he's got a U.S. sugar daddy here that basically funds his campaign effort. And that's Sheldon Adelson. Right. (laughs) <laughs> who, who paid for? Who paid a bunch of money toward Newt Gingrich in that's the last right. cycle? Right, the father of uh, gambling in uh, in the U.S. Here, and, and that's something that I think people need to become aware of. That is that capitalism, as we know it today in America, is a system that rewards psychopaths, yes. whether yes. it's the Koch brothers or Martin Shkreli, Pharma Bro, yes. um, Rupert Murdoch. Yes. I think with the level that so many people in America, you know, they're ingrained in the system in such a way that. What if it's just a big disaster being the only option of us waking up? 9-11 is is an example I can think of. You remember, I mean, I lived in northwest Indiana at the time, and people came together kind of on this jingoistic, Uh very fear-based unity. So I wonder, is it only disasters that wake us up? You 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 look at the news of other countries where people are in the streets. It's because they're hungry. They have nothing left to lose. Here, we're just too pampered and and dumb. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, I think we don't know how this is going to play out, which is why it's so important for us to do everything in our power to, um, to get on the record, to put out there this other narrative that actually enforces, you know, supports, lifts up our humanity, our common humanity, because humanity is contagious, too, in the same way that fear is. And right now we have a corporate system that thrives on fear and hate and the sale of weapons. And we have a very sick system right now that's full of all kinds of firewalls to keep it going. However, at the same time, that system is in collapse. It's in collapse right now. And people, in my experience, are very hungry for integrity. You know, they can smell a rat, and they know uh, when a politician or someone of that ilk is a rat, there are a lot of people who are sitting this out, people of community and integrity who are sitting out this rat race because they don't want to get up and support a rat. And that's, you know, it was two-thirds of voters in 2014 who smelled a lot of rats. So as I see it, our job is to exercise our humanity in the biggest, uh, loudest, most affirming um, and inspiring way that we can. We need to uh, say what we're about, you know, an agenda for people, planet, and peace over profit, and what that looks like, and that how, how that creates security going forward. Um, we need to lift that up, and we need to let it be known that there's another way forward here, and we need to be fighting for that, not only at the national level, but right there in our communities. We need to be reaching out and talking to each other, and especially, in my view, it's the younger generation, because that's who it 
usually falls to almost all the time. It is the younger generation who decides where we're going to go. They've been removed. They've been marginalized. They are missing in action. They've been disappeared by a predatory economic and political system that has thrust them into debt and made it impossible for them to be participants in society. We need to cancel that debt and bring them back because it's always young people who are putting to get things together in a whole new light in light of today's reality not reality from 30 40 or 50 years ago which is how you know the older generation just will see things that's how their dna works you know so so we need that fresh vision uh, I think there's an awful lot of power in that, and there's a lot of power in our coming together as social movements across the spectrum of justice for economic, social, racial, uh, labor, uh, indigenous, um, you know, climate, health, justice, all those forms of justice. You put us together, and we have, you know, overwhelming numbers, overpowering numbers. We can win the day. It's about making those connections on Facebook, on through social media, etc., Connecting uh, now and not letting ourselves be intimidated into supporting a corporate system and either of its parties that are basically throwing us over the cliff. I, I tell people all the time, if, if you've got good ideas, please speak up because there are enough bad ideas that we hear all the time <laughs> and people are losing faith in humanity. Speak up with those good ideas and you know, plant yes. seeds. Even if people disagree with you right away, planting seeds is, is so important and as far as catching people at the right time, I think young 20s, at least that's when I came to my political mm-hmm. understanding. Of course, George W. Bush was in office, and I came to know politics by what I did not want to identify with, as did a lot of people yes. of that time. So I think, you know, now with with the ball being in the right court, the tide going in the right direction, just you know, catch as many <laughs> young, young and, 20s. And, as, and with young people being trapped in debt and knowing that they're trapped. Right. You know, it's like uh, it's a slam dunk, you know, for young people to know that their debt can be canceled as part of an agenda, uh, a public interest agenda, and that they deserve uh, a secure start and that they deserve health care as a human right, that they deserve education as a human right, you know, to sort of reset the agenda by engaging them uh, at their, you know, at their moment of incredible peril. Yeah, you know, to my mind, this is like this is such a win-win because it liberates young people, and it also attaches them to an agenda of justice because they've been getting, you know, the short end of the stick here, uh, in a very big way. So it's a great time for mobilizing people, and you know, there's nothing like dire necessity, you know, right. to really uh, create a movement, an unstoppable right. one. And, and much like Occupy Wall Street, I feel like, you know, especially now with social media and uh, ideas getting out there, like Bernie Sanders especially, he, he, may, he may be a little too establishment for your taste, you, you radical green. And, and I, I, I feel like when I heard he was running for president, I got excited right away because I've, I've heard his name always tied up with good things. How do I put this? I don't want to have to vote for a Democrat ever again in my life because, you know, I feel like the lesser of two evils is something I burned out on long, a long time ago. But certainly within my lifetime, I, I plan on seeing the Green Party having a, a lot more of a significant stake in things, especially with TV news just kind of going the way of the dinosaur. And I really do believe that if they do sideswipe Bernie, I mean, I, I think that you'll certainly see a groundswelling of support because people are fed up with the Democratic Party, and I think a lot of people are holding their nose and registering as a Democrat to 
vote for Bernie in the primaries. But like you said, there's this lame-o superdelegate system. And not to mention the, the uh, electoral college. I never got that. Why don't we just go off the popular vote? We got too much to change in this country, don't exactly. we? Exactly. And, and we could also, you know, let people rank their choices so that once you rank your choices, you actually really liberate your vote. You know, and that's a simple thing. This is a change that we can undertake at the state level. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. You know, there are so many ways to revive our democracy. You know, I mean, I... I disagree with Bernie on foreign policy. I disagree with turning the Saudis loose to be our, you know, our, our proxy in the Middle East. You know, the Saudis have actually been at the base, at the root cause of terrorism and terrorist right. movements, going way back to the Mujahideen, which we were also implicated in. You know, so we don't fix this problem by doing more of what caused yeah, it, whether to, it's the U.S. or the Saudis. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are many ways. You know, Bernie supports the F-16 uh, fighter system. Forget Is that the what big the worthless billion-dollar jet? Well, it's... It's, it's like, uh, so far it has cost almost a trillion dollars and it will cost that, another half a trillion. Really? I did not and know that Bernie supported Yeah, he, suppo- he supports it because it provides jobs in Vermont. And, you know, and our point is that we need to change that economy. It's not okay to have that, you know, that basic war economy. So, you know, th- there are differences there, which some would argue are very important, that, that domestic policy is only as good as your foreign policy. Because if you're draining your money on the war machine and you're not ready to cut that war machine by ceasing to cause wars you know it's the u.s policies of total economic and military domination that are blowing back at us with failed states and and terrorist threats and mass refugee migrations you know this is we need a foreign policy based on international law and human rights period let's start from that uh and then it's quite workable and we can cut the budget a whole lot especially when we get to 100 percent you know renewable energy by moving on that track you know, we don't need the friggin' wars for oil, and they can't be justified. They're immoral and, and, and very destructive as it is. So, you know, suffice it to say, uh, our campaign has some differences with Bernie's uh, on that order, and I think those are important. However, there are many areas, you know, in which he is doing a magnificent job of advocating. Um, Free college, for one. He's really brought that into the conversation. Hillary's been forced to well, take up that position, yes, artificially, of course. And that's great, and I'm glad he finally came on board, you know. We've been advocating for that, you know, for decades. Um, and we need also to end student debt. You know, we really got to abolish student debt. But universal health care, of course. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, you can find minor differences there as well. But yes, he's basically been in the right camp on universal health care. On school privatization, you know, he supported the amendments that carried on with this um, high-stakes testing and uh, more privatization and, and the forming of charters. So, you know, I think there we have a bone to pick with the Democratic Party and, you know, Elizabeth Warren was also on that bandwagon, too, along with Bernie. So you can find significant differences. Chris Hedges points out that Bernie uh, voted for the NSA, he's voted for war budgets, etc., that he likes what Bernie has to say, but doesn't like Bernie's votes. Are they like, are they heavily earmarked bills, though? Because that seems to be another real problem, is there's so much tied to each individual bill to where, you know, one can say, oh, well, he voted against the troops, or a lot of times unrelated earmarks that are stuffed into a bill. As I tell you, this is uh, what Chris Hedges is saying. So, you know, I can't, I don't know. That's one um, thing. I've, that's something I'd like to see change, you know, almost as much as I'd like to see big money taken out of politics completely. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Is, and, and I think Bernie is saying the right thing there, too. So uh, but, getting, I think a lot of it is getting the discussion in the right direction. That's why I was really happy when Occupy Wall Street got the coverage that yes. it did. Yes. And I think Bernie's having a 
very positive effect on um, really stirring the pot here and making people very conscious. Listen to that bird. Oh. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Can't always identify birds, but I have a friend who he knows oh. all the, the calls. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make one final point sure. though, about Bernie, which was that we really agree with on most policies. But what's different is that, you know, can one person inside of a hostile party create that revolution? You know, that's where I'd say we need to build a movement, a movement that is not subject to being uh, destroyed by a party which has long since been sold down the creek. And, you know, we'll see how this plays out. Um, and, you know, I, I wish him well. But on the other hand, I... I, I wish I could believe, you know, I wish that uh, horses could fly, you know, but wishes are not horses, shall we say, <laughs> um, you know, and I think, you know, we don't want to surrender to the Democratic Party again and let them catch us off guard, because right. that's what they've been doing. You know, they find ways to talk you back, to pull you back and to rein you in. And uh, I hope that Bernie's supporters are being alerted right now to the counterattack, which is underway right now. The New York Times was supposed to have had an article that I haven't seen yet today I've been seeing about them. this. I've been seeing the attacks. Yes, they're, they're coming. Yeah. Yes, they're definitely coming. So I think people should hedge their bets. Go ahead. If you're supporting Bernie, do it. But help us get on the ballot to make sure that yes. you have a choice and you have a place to continue building so all your hard work does not get funneled back into a hostile party at the end of the day. Right. And I'm no political expert, but my prediction is that if if Hillary does sideswipe Bernie, um, I don't feel like there is anywhere near the loyalty to the Democratic brand and you're going to see a lot of pissed off Bernie supporters that are either going to either write his name in or, you know, start to wake up to candidates like yourself. And uh, I, I do not see real people coming to support Hillary. Of all the people I know, I know very few people that actually like Hillary or Donald Trump. Well, Hillary, of course, is super establishment and Donald Trump is his own style of buffoonery. But yeah, like you said, people are fed up and they need to know that there's more than just two heads of the same beast that you got to keep kowtowing to or yes if you look around here at this beautiful imperiled space you know you can't help but know that this could fall through our fingers very quickly that mm. unless we resolve now to take a very clear direct and unrelenting stand for people, planet, and peace. And you need all of them in order to get any one of them. You know, kiss it goodbye. We're in the middle of that sixth extinction. Uh, you know, we heard yesterday that, that this is the warmest year on record. Um, we're looking at, you know, devastating floods and, and droughts and storms. And the science is telling us now that we are going to see a sea level rise, not of a few feet, but probably of 10 or 20 feet or more as soon as in a couple decades if we don't dramatically change course. You know, going forward, this doesn't end at the primary. It doesn't get funneled back into Hillary Clinton's campaign. And that we, you know, how long do we have to be, how many times do we have to be taught the lesson that the Democratic Party is a corporate party? Um, we've been taught that, these very bitter lessons. You know, you can see how young people coming up are being uh, manipulated and um, 
uh, sort of misled by the Democratic Party and its machines that are trying to capture them. But for those who've been this before, through this before, it's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times. You know, we were just fooled twice with Obama. You know, how much longer will this keep going on? There is no end to this cycle of deception and disappointment. That disappointment is now, it's, it's reached lethal levels. Lethal, you know, for our lives, our health, the marine food chain is about to collapse. Look where, wherever you want, scratch the surface, and we are teetering on the brink. So it's time to reject this apologism for a real vision of a world that works for all of us. We need to really stand up for it now and go for it with all we've got while we still have a chance to do it before it all slips through our fingers or we, you know, descend into that uh, dark fascist uh, era, which is also hovering as people continue to have their, you know, needs thwarted and to live in continuing insecurity and hardship uh, in this climate of fear. It's time to cast out the politics of fear, to stand up with the politics of courage, and to reject the lesser evil and fight like hell for the greater good. Our lives depend on it. Uh, This is the time to go for it and make it happen. That certainly sounds like something I can get behind. (laughs) Great. Well, Jill Stein, thank you for your time. Thank you, Dan. Best of luck to you, and don't stop speaking the truth. You bet. And thanks for uh, amplifying it and getting it out there on those airwaves. Well, podcast waves. Podcast waves, yes. (laughs) Thanks so much. Great talking. Nice walk, too. edition of the spirit of the forest was produced recorded and edited by dan crawl a thank you is offered to matt kellum for his recordings of some of this episode's musical contributions and a thanks is offered to joel peisig and jody grage of the jill stein for president campaign for their assistance in coordinating the interview you just heard with Dr. Jill Stein. A thanks goes out to the voices on this episode, which include Molly Arnold, Dan Crawl, the mystery man or woman from the YouTube video entitled Angry Guy Yells at Trumpet Player, Jim Hewart, Alex Kernew, Catherine and Ingrid Stevens, and Dr. Jill Stein. Appreciation is given to the music projects who appeared on this episode, which include Death Vogue, Being Satellites, Project Isle, and Doug Sowers. 
I'm Sir Blayton de Lodge Mattenberry. Until next time, so long. <laughs>